Welcome to episode 356 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature the first installment of a three-part series with acclaimed visual artist through photography, painting, film, sculpture, and most recently, as a writer. He just published his memoir titled, I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going. Peter McGough. We discuss in this installment his early days, going back to Syracuse and how he left there for New York City. Started hanging out with the likes of David McDermott and Basquiat. We discuss time and the beauty and power of art, education too, among other things. A grand conversation with Peter McGough. We have an EW essay titled Go-Go Boots and a poem called Ethereal. All of this, of course, will be, as is always the case, infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 356 of Troubadours and Tours. Thank you. 
go-go boots. My father once told me when I was a teenager that life is simple, but it's complex. It's complex, but it's simple. I thought he was a frustrated man talking nonsense. He may well have been frustrated, though as I regularly reflect on those words he shared all these years later, I have come to realize the depth of insight and wisdom. He is an immigrant from southern Italy with seven years of education from his small mountain village school. He once told me when I was complaining about a pair of non-name brand sneakers he purchased for me at the Sunday flea market about how, as a child, he wore sandals made out of the rubber from discarded tires and rope. His first proper pair of shoes were not attained until he was ten years old. After finishing his seventh year of school, my father, Nicola, asked a shoemaker in the village of Campana, the Italian word for bell, to be his apprentice. He became a shoemaker. He made shoes for colonels and generals in the Italian army during his mandatory three years of national service, traveling in Milano, Torino, and other industrious, high-culture northern Italian cities. He eventually migrated to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, having been sponsored by his father Lorenzo's brother, Pasquale. He garnered work with Mellow Shoe Company. The owner, understanding his extraordinary ability as a shoemaker, brought him to the Waldorf Astoria to meet Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz, so that he could take measurements of Ms. Ball to make her a pair of go-go boots. They had supper together that evening and shared some laughs. Today, he sits in one chair most of the day, lost and sedated in dementia. Life is simple, but it's complex. It's complex, but it's simple. The milk is out, I've barely been to college And I've been doubtful of all that I've dreamed of The brink of my existence essentially is a comedy The gap in my teeth and all that I can cling to The milk is out Shalala, um, um, shalala, um, shalala, um, um, shalala The milk is sour with olives on my thumbs all that I've stuck to and all that I've clung to I fought like a dog This world that I've trusted has been over and busted And rested by an arbitrary sonogram Shalala, ooh, ooh, shalala Comedy, the gap in my teeth, and all that I can cling to the 
If you don't go outside, well, nothing's gonna happen. She'll never write a number on a crumpled up napkin. She'll never be your ego. She'll never be a bandit. She'll never get to eat you like your heart's a pomegranate. I'm throwing out the milk. The olives got old. I'm tired of my mind getting heavy with mold. I need to start a garden. I need to start a garden. Start a garden in my backyard. I'm gonna start a garden in my backyard. Cause making this song up is just as hard. Cause making this song up is just as hard. Installment one of three of our interview with acclaimed artist Peter McGough. Hello. Hello, Peter McGough. Is that you? This is he. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours at EW Conundrum. Who's this? E.W. Conundrum Demure. Hello, Mr. Demure. <laughs> I, I look forward to talking with you. And uh, before we get going, if you don't mind, I'd like, I like to give the listeners some background information on you. Yes. Okay, here we go. Peter McGough is one half of the artistic and life partnership that includes David McDermott. McDermott and McGough are visual artists known for their work in painting, photography, sculpture, and film. They currently split their time between Dublin and New York City. Among the subjects they approach are popular art and culture, religion, medicine, advertising, time, fashion, and sexual behavior. Their photography involves appropriating images and objects from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, and they project an image of themselves as gentlemen posing as erudite, impertinent characters. They have since become well-known for their way of blending art and daily life. During the 1980s, McDermott and McGough dressed, lived, and worked as artists and, quote, men about town circa 1900 through 1928. They wore top hats and detachable collars and converted a townhouse on Avenue C in New York City's East Village, which was lit only by candlelight, to its authentic mid-19th century ideal. Peter published a memoir in September 2019 titled, I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going. It's described as a compelling memoir for our time, told with humor and compassion about how lives can become completely entwined, even in failure, and what it costs to reemerge, phoenix-like, and carry on. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Peter McGough. Again, thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. Oh, oh, it's great. Here, here we go. I'm going to go right in. Um, your journey from Syracuse, New York, to New York City. Can you give us a little 
insight into that journey? I was going to go. I received a grant, uh, like a, I guess a grant, a state grant or something to go to college that I didn't have to repay. And the colleges that accepted me were Buffalo University and the Fashion Institute of Technology. My sister said, well, you don't want to go to the Fashion Institute. It's full of homosexuals. But that helped me change my mind and <laughs> not go to Buffalo. Because I had some friends who were at Buffalo. But I didn't go. And then I was accepted when I was 18. I didn't have housing. And then when I was 19, I still didn't have housing. And I just lied to my parents and said I did. And they drove me there in their car. And they let me out at the dormitories. And I said, don't bother coming in. My room's not ready. <laughs> I'll sleep later. And then I was homeless for, I don't know, four months, six months. Four months, probably, I kept sleep. I slept on someone's floor who was from my hometown in Syracuse for two nights and with her roommate. And then she said, oh, uh, we're having a Bible study on Wednesday. And I left. And I stayed at some person who I still know, Curtis's floor. So that's what I did till I found an apartment. And actually, that's right around the corner for me where I live presently. And you were about 19 years old when this was happening? Yes, I moved to New York when I was 19, September, you know, when I was 19, 78 maybe, 58, 68, 78, yeah, I was 19. And uh, Manhattan, as compared to Syracuse, uh, as a 19-year-old, how did it How did it compare? I loved it. I loved it. I loved all of it. The dirty Times Square, the, I loved it all. The West Village with all their village people and the crumbling piers and all the kooks. Uh, I just loved it. It was still very, very old-fashioned. You know, it was still like at old diners. And, you know, it still looked like Taxi Driver, the movie, when I saw it. It still looked like that. It wasn't what it is now. Now it looks like a set of friends, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like boring. You know, I never watched that show, but, you know, it, I just say it because it just seems very generic, you know. Yeah, and I guess the argument is, you know, uh, it's safer now, you know, for tourists, I Yeah, that's what, that's what Bloomberg, Giuliani and Bloomberg, they made it for tourism. And, you know, it's got the high line. They made it like St. Louis or some a city, like very nice but not exciting as it used to be, even though I still love it. You know, I was up in the Bronx just now, the Bronx Museum, and driving with a friend of mine, and I got to see the, you know, all the different areas, which I think are fantastic. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's still a great town, and it's where I like to live, you know, but it's not what it used to be, but nothing is. That's true, and, and we're going to get into that, our sen your sense of time. You know, uh, let's, let's kind of get, I guess, chronological... We, it's 1978, we are now 79, and then you get into the 80s, and uh, mm. you meet your your partner, in a, in several ways your partner, uh, David McDermott. Uh, yes. And then you guys kind of burst on the art scene in the 80s. You want to um, maybe share a little bit of that, 
uh, experience with us? You know, some of the defining characteristics and the people uh, of, of the New York uh, art scene then? Well, you know, when I met him in 1980, he courted me. I was working at the first incarnation of Dance Deteria. It was busted by the police and closed. And he courted me and he swooped me in because I said I wanted to be a a famous artist. And he says, oh, I'm making a painting for my mother. So that was the first painting. And he lived, he was basically, looked like a homeless person. I mean, he didn't dress like one, but he lived on a corner on Bowery and Grand that he he had rented from his two friends, Christian Hoffman and Bradley Field. Bradley died of AIDS living in Tompkins Square Park after Christian left and uh, for California. But, you know, so he knew the punk scene, you know, Glenn O'Brien, who ran, who was worked for Warhol, you know, just a great writer of music, art, uh, books, fashion. He just knew everyone. Glenn, he worked on Madonna's sex book. I mean, that's a whole other story. And Glenn passed away a few years ago. So he knew everybody. He knew the art critics. He knew downtown New York from living on the Upper West Side. So he knew all these people. And then, uh, you know, being in the East Village where he ended up in, you know, that working at Dance Interior with Keith Herring and David Warnerovich and Steve Buscemi was uh, there. Also, he was a fireman at the time. And, you know, Steve Buscemi and this fellow Mark, who's an actor, they did these little performances in East Village. You know, you'd see all these people. Jean-Michel was a teenager when I met him. Keith Herring and Kenny Sharp, they were all at School of Visual Arts. And, you know, it all was the East Village. And then Patty Astor opened the Fun Gallery, and he knew Patty from these films, these Super 8 films that uh, people were making, like Amos Poe and James Nares. And, uh, you know, Jim Jarmusch was the most famous of them now and so he just knew everybody in that scene and then everybody you know did their thing you know and when i asked him if he liked all the punk music he said it's horrible (laughs) but they're the only people that like me you know he couldn't find so he knew all these people and i and you know he was like you know come with me and i'll make your dreams come true and he was a very interesting character and you know he's from california right well, he was born in Hollywood, but he grew up in Clifton, New Jersey. Uh, but he was born there. Three weeks later, his father deserted his mother and, and the baby. So she had to move back to New Jersey because her, her man left her. And he's, and, a, he's a few uh, years older than you? He's six years older than I. I guess did that make a difference too when you're when you're younger now it doesn't make a difference but when you're when younger, younger I yeah. mean he was more the authority figure I just didn't know anything I mean I loved to read my mother was a librarian I liked Dottis art and surrealism and you know what I learned in school and he was a very smart person you know so he educated me on history you know and uh, his theories of time you know quite eccentric but quite brilliant Oh, I saw, I've read some things and watched some shorts that uh, you guys produced. And, and the theory of time that you share is very fascinating uh, to me. Uh, and yeah. if you want to give a little summary of how you look at time, that'd be interesting. Well, that was what our work was about. You know, they said it's about living in the past, but, 
you know, we he lived, uh, when I met him, he was dressing in the 1930s, and I had all these 50s clothes. And then we moved into this house on Avenue C that was mid-19th century, so that's when he took it up, out the electricity and threw out the kitchen and threw out the radiators and converted it back to as original as possible and filled it with all the period furnitures. And uh, I think that we had this 1913 Model T Ford later on, and it had wooden wheels with a tire around it, and one of the wooden wheels from 1913 snapped just a block from the country house we had in Rhinebeck. And I was catapulted out of the back seat Ooh. and thrown onto a highway. And when I was thrown out of the back of the seat, time stood still enough for me. It probably was a millisecond as I looked down at them as I'm flying, I'm hovering above them. And I think to myself, this is an accident. And then I'm, the next thing I know, I'm face down on a highway, a macadam highway. And I stood up without a scratch. Nothing happened to me. I wasn't knocked out. I didn't get nothing broke, no scratches. And that to me is what time is because time, I think the world's just insane. I think the world is just crazy. And the best I can do is enjoy it because everyone's got their face in the phone. So that, those phones, 40 minutes, 40 minutes can go by in a, in, a, in a second. And you're like, where the hell was I for the last 40 minutes? Oh, on a phone. And uh, that is, that's the, that's the future, is that phone. That phone changed everything. 10, 11 years old, that phone. And the world, I'm fascinated by that phone because everyone's in another reality. By walking on the street, texting or talking face to face, they walk different, they move differently, they stop, they come out of a, a subway, pick up your phone. They go in the subway, pick up your phone. They walk down the street, pick up your phone. They walk around with their phone in their hand like it's a purse. So I do think that is time, but it's so, it's just an illusion, the phone. It's just this, it, it pulls you in. They know the people who, the, cons, the consumerist culture, the capitalists know they have something to sell because you're, your atten- one's attention is stuck in this screen that constantly has ads. Ads are attached to everything. You cannot escape anything without an ad. It's you almost can't watch. Yeah. It's almost no. I, I was going to say it's almost like you know, we're hypnotized. Yes, and it is as the cliche goes. It's 1984 Orwellian. And they are hypnotic. They're hypnotic. And I think they've got everyone staring into the. I mean, if one left their phone at home for the day, it's like a panic ensues. Exactly. You know, it's like I don't have my communication to the world. And this. Nobody remembers. This throws off the sense of, of, I guess, being in the moment when we're talking about time, or is it a waste of the moments that we have? 
Well, you know, if you look up out of the phone, there's the whole world looking at you. You know, you don't need anything in those phones. I mean, I was watching a Keanu Reeves movie someplace, and it was one of those, you know, he loves those action big things, like this guy in a black suit who kills people. I mean, yeah. So and he's running, he's running down this hallway of these old tunnels, and there's all these killers in little hidden passageways that he has to shoot. These are games for gamers. They are making movies that gamers to watch their movies because that's all those kids do is they shoot people. It's not even Super Mario or whatever his name is. This is all violence. And so I'm watching this Keanu Reeves kill all of these people. And then he did a third one. That's where I was watching it. It was upstate at my friend's house. A third one. Immediately, the movie starts violence. And it doesn't end for two hours, the violence. If not, I have to turn it off. My friend was so upset. She could stand all the axes and heads and things like that. But it's a gamer's movie. Because these gamers are watching it. And I was watching something. It was a Fruit Loops commercial that came on. Violence? Fruit Loops with violence? It's absurd, but I thought what I really noticed was that these movies are for gamers, and they're just games. Yeah, yeah, and again, so you're saying this takes us away from the the better, normal, natural things that are all around us anyhow. And I, you and, and uh, Mr. McDermott, sort of went backwards maybe still quote-unquote backwards it was a it was a failed utopia it was a failed utopia and boy was it a great one how how was it lasted 10 years maybe i mean when everything was kind of working the height of it the height was the horses the carriages the cars you know the ship uh, passages you know all that and maybe like at its height it was five or six years like more and, you know, I photographed through these cyanotypes. I, we got an old camera, and I just put, turned the camera on his interiors because he was mostly interested in the look, the clothing, the interiors, the objects, the wallpaper. He had to build his time experiment. And inside of that, I was painting. He was painting, too, at the beginning, but it, when he has a project, he throws himself into it, and it is magnificent. He's, uh, I, I think his greatest art is his installations of these, these rooms. And, you know, here we are on Avenue C in the 80s when, you know, across a kitty corner across the street was a whole block of flat dirt. There was nothing on it. The building around the corner was all burnt out and broken. There were bricks all onto the sidewalk. You know, there's this movie, Downtown 81, that McDermott went to film when we were living in Hudson. And I just went to see it at the Metrograph, and I had to give a talk to open one of the screenings. And I just read from my book about when we went up there. And uh, Jean-Michel's walking with his canvas. Uh, he builds a fort, buys soup, and has a car on it. He's walking down this street that I knew very well in these villages, and it's completely bombed out. Completely bombed out. It's all destroyed. 
and here he is walking down the street, you know, the sidewalk, this crowd, bur- you know, burnt out cars, things like that. So it was like living in a war zone. It's like living in Berlin. Hello? Peter, I'm sorry we got disconnected. Just as you were walking down the street with uh, Basquiat. Oh, yes. Um, you know, so it was a slummy neighborhood. And uh, one of the first apartments it was four rooms for $300. And I thought, how are we going to pay this rent? Because we didn't work a job. Especially McDermott. He didn't want to work a job. You know? And... Um, so it was a different time period, and I guess a lot of people are fascinated it by it because it was real. There was no phone to gaze in. You had to run into people, or you had to, you know, see if they had a phone. A lot of people didn't. And, uh, you know, it was a different time period, and I could see why people are interested in it. I guess, that, you know, most people think their time is interesting, but as new, for New York, it was very interesting. And it was so, very interesting. So that was more, was it like a, would you say it's, it was a, a performance art piece? Some people say it was that, or you were just living well, like, living the way you were living. It was an experiment. It was a time experiment. It was, you know, uh, it was like a performance, definitely for him. He's more of a performer. He was a performer when I met him at the New Way Vaudeville show. He was the master of ceremonies and introduced Klaus Nomi, you know. That was when Klaus became the star of the show. And uh, he was more of a performer. He didn't work that much. He made a painting here or there, but he was a singer and, uh, you know, performer in the East Village. And with me, I wanted to be a painter more than anything. And uh, so that's how you know, how he became more interested in painting. You know, he said, if you wanted to be a hairdresser, we'd have a hair salon with making Marcel Wave, you know. But, uh, you know, he he loved the performance. I didn't like people bothering me on the street. You know, why are you dressed like that? What are you doing? He loved the attention. You know, I just wanted to get to the studio. But, uh, you know, we couldn't have been more opposite personalities. And and as you said, that, that that went on for about a decade, living like that. You know, when it was really great. You know, after the crash of the late 80s, it hit the art world in the early 90s, and we never, he spent every dime that came in, and he'd fight me if I tried to save money. He just had to have his way. And uh, so we were hit hard. He moved to Ireland. I moved things over, and... Then we started making a European life for ourselves, and then I got sick, and I came back to New York, you know, and then I stayed. But uh, And he's in Ireland. He's there in Ireland. Are you guys still working together? No. He doesn't want to talk to me. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, you know, it's just because, you know, I just, you know, he said, oh, well, that's when you learn to say no to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a very dominant personality. It's not my decision, it's his, but, you know, he hasn't painted in a long time, 20 years easily, if not more. And you're still painting? Who is? You. Yes, I paint. I kept the painting 
going and, you know, under both our names without him for decades. And, uh, you know, he thought it was really funny that he had a career and he didn't have to work. And, uh, you know, and I supported him grandly. Yeah, but, why, why, know, did, why did you keep both names? Just because it's sort of a brand? Kind of, but, you know, it, it works for a while. You know, he doesn't want to talk to me and all that, but it's all right. You know, we fought for years. We fought for years. You yeah. know. Yeah, I do. I've been through several relationships that were pretty intense. So you know, you can't really, yeah. really, you can't explain it to anybody else. You only know if you're in it is the only. Yeah, the, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a highly intelligent person. I mean, incredibly well read. You know, he's he's really smart. It's just you know when you that smart, you know, it usually comes out of some. You know, he was diagnosed with Asperger's autism. Mm. So by two different doctors. So. You know, it comes. I have a friend who has two sons that are Asperger's, and it's tough. And uh, but um, you know, like anybody, there's the good parts and bad parts. He just wants money all the time. It just a, <laughs> who does? Who yeah, does it? Exactly. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's great talking to talking with you, Peter. It really is. Peter McGuff yeah. here on the on the program, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Um, I, I'd like to ask you a question, given your experience uh, with with art. Uh, how do you how how does one know when they are experiencing beauty? Well, beauty. I mean, you look at a sunset. You're experiencing beauty. You're experiencing the greatest art, nature. I mean, I think any person. And look at a sunset, even if they're in the worst mood ever, it can either snap them out of it or just they pause for a moment in the rage. And, uh, you know, beautiful forests or vistas or the Alps, staring at the Alps. I remember once I first saw the Alps in Switzerland, uh, we were invited by this art dealer, Bruno Bischofberger, to stay with them over Christmas. And, you know, you just, I looked at it and it hurt my eyes. I mean, of course, it was a bright day on those white slopes, but it was just so, it looked like a postcard. I couldn't even wrap my head around it. It was so beautiful. And I think that when you're looking, you know, so nature is complete beauty. You know, it's even a twisted tree, you know, or a little twisted bonsai tree or or the, uh, a waterfall or whatever, the Rocky Mountains, you know, I think that people can really melt into it. And art is very much uh, either personal or it's a market or someone saying this is really great. You know, there's some people that look at art and they can really understand it. And some people, I think, they look at a price tag. Am I going to flip it? Or some people look at it and think, is this going to go in my house with my furniture? You know, and it's not about the art for the room. It's the room for the art. You know, in my, my book, I think, not my book book, but, you know, my way of thinking is that art 
you know, when you read about, you know, art's about the enemy, art's antisocial, art's radical, art is all these things like being a murderer or this or that. And I think that people can look at different kind of art and, you know, like when you go to the museum and they say, my kid could do that. Well, your kid didn't do it. <laughs> and, you know, there's this artist, Bryce Martin, who does these minimalist paintings, like a plane colors next to each other. And people are like, well, I don't know what this means. But it's like, well, did you ever meditate? That's what it's like. It's this void and it's beauty at the same time. It's this space that you can connect with instead of something that is, you know, going round and round and round in your head, you know? So I think that beauty, I was told by this printer of photography, he said, what I like about your work, and it's a bad word in the art world, is you're about beauty. And I actually made a painting that said beauty matters. And, you know, before all the this matters and that matters, but I wasn't trying to play off on that other people's uh you know, like Black Lives Matter, which I think is very important. And, uh, you know, so art is about the sublime. Art is about something that's undescribable. You know, I think Pasolini said, if it makes sense, it's not working. <laughs> you know, the film director, you have to, I think that art is can reach, you know, the highest ethereal voices of unconsciousness. You know, it can... It can move you to great heights. It can it can change your point of view, and I think that uh, that for me is what art's about. You know, I look at, I go around and I look at the galleries, and I'm like, well, that's you know that's the current thing. Oh, that's what the young people are doing. Oh, they're really talented draftsmen. Wow, that's really great. Or, or oh, wow, it's so big. And then sometimes it's like. I'm immersed in their vision, and I'm I'm just stunned by it, stunned by how it moves me. And that's what art, music, books, painting, sculpture, you know, the art, I, that's why it's so beautiful. You give me a nice lead into another question I wanted to ask you. Um, how can and how should art affect society then? Well... Art can be political, too. And I think that what's happening in society now in the art world is people of color and women are getting more attention than they've ever gotten in the art world. It was a, a white, straight male, dominated, dominated world, the art world. And uh, I think that... What was your question again? <laughs> no, that's all right. Uh, how can or and how should art affect society was the question. Well, it, it reflects it. It reflects society. And I think that in the arts, bringing black artists into the forefront, it gets, art is the beginning of everything. It's history. We know our history through the written word and visuals. And so by bringing people of color and women artists to the forefront, even if it's a struggle and even if it's not completely even, it gives people a different viewpoint that gets set in their brain. Oh, there are these other kinds of artists. 
I can relate to this painting that I normally wouldn't have seen if it wasn't brought into a museum that I went to on a class trip or whatever. And I think that it does change society. You know, the cliche being Andy Warhol saying it's Campbell's soup can is art. This is art. And I'm not saying the artist has to understand what they're doing. You know, when you think of Warhol and they were saying, oh, it's so poppy, it's so colorful, oh, it's so this, it's so that. And then this one writer said, it really has a lot to do with death. Disaster paintings, Marilyn, he painted her when she died, the skulls, his portrait with the shock of hair on his top of his head, you know, for telling his death, the, the Last Supper paintings. You know, it's all about this death. And, you know, death is a very scary subject for people. I embrace death because I know it's going to happen to me. One day, unfortunately, this world I know I'll no longer be a part of. And what's beyond this physical body, I'm not vain enough to say. I'm not vain enough to say there's nothing because I've never been there. And I'm not vain enough to say there's something, again, because I've never been there. And so I know it's going to happen. And if death is going to happen to me, I think, well, you better start living. Mm-hmm. You better start living because everyone in the room's going to die. Everyone in the auditorium's going to die. And the building's going to die. And the street's going to die. And the country's going to die. And we're all going to die. And when you think... You're, I'm born, event, event, event after event after event, and then I die. And I think, that makes no sense. What a chip. <laughs> that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And, you know, my mother thinks she's going to see the Virgin Mary and my father. And I think, well, more power to you, Sue. If that gets you through each day, and that's your belief system, who am I to say it's not true? I don't know. You know, I've read so many different things about, you know, different parts of the universe, black holes, different planets, reflecting our planet, you know, all these scientific theories. It's great. Well, let's see if it happens. I'll only know when I croak. So my attitude is I'm not the most greatest morning person. Now I'm starting to be. I, I wake up out of the bed with the sun comes in my window and I go, mm-hmm. and then I think, well, just get out of bed. I stand up and I say, hey, you made it. You made it. You know, half your friends died of AIDS 30 years ago, all dead at age 31. You know, Keith Herring died at 31. Not that he was a great friend. He was an, I was acquainted with him. But there he is, dead, 31 years old. And he died of failure. His last show didn't sound. And now it's like $10 million a painting. And they're like, Keith Harris the greatest, you know. And he was, he is great. But, you know, so I think, well, you made it. You are alive today on Sunday. And I think, don't think about Monday. It's not even here. You've got Sunday to live through. And it's not even over yet. It's half the day. So that's how I get through it. Because otherwise it's like, the waters are polluted. They're going to sell us oxygen in the in the future. They're polluting the air so badly. They're selling us bottled water. They're going to sell oxygen. If there's a dime to be made, someone's going to do it. And I think that 
the world is cruel. 17, 13 million people starving to death in Yemen after we bombed them. You know, all of these problems in, you know, Fukushima is still, uh, you know, spilling a toxic waste into the oceans. The fish eating cigarette butts, cigarette butts are the filthiest, filthiest garbage you could ever throw on the street. They don't even put it anywhere. They throw it right on the street. Millions of people. And that crumbles, goes into the ocean, and the fish eat the little plastic particles in the filter, and we eat the fish. So this is, I'm saying all this, is the world is insane. It, it, Bombing, it, fighting, our president, <laughs> the Brexit, all of this insanity. So I think I have to enjoy my life. I have to find time, you know, other than going to protest, or marches or saying how I feel or what, listening to politicians. And I think I can enjoy it because it makes no sense. All these people, you can't eat money and you can't drink money and you can't breathe it. And it's a piece of paper or metal. No one's interested in the coins. They're interested in the bills. And I think, and it makes people crazy. Makes And the television, for me, what a nightmare. I mean, I was raised on television. I was raised on it. I My mother just parked us in front of the TV set, and I loved it. But, you know, it just seems the most absurd thing in the world because the media tells an individual how to behave. And, yes, it's good because now they're bringing in people of color, trans people that people really have a heart you know when they say there's a their person in the bathroom and I, it's a woman's bathroom and i don't know if it's a man or a woman it's terrible i'm like my attitude is didn't you ever go to a nightclub did you ever go to a nightclub where anybody can use any bathroom whether it was a men's bathroom or a women's bathroom why are you so freaked out they're not going to go near you <laughs> they don't want to know you so that's a, that's the, so there are great things about the media, but the media, the news, is owned by six people in the United States. That's who owns it, Rupert Murdoch being one of them. Yeah. You know, so... Is, is this, what, is this some of this? You have to fill me in a little bit, because I tend to go off on a lot No, of no, things. I'm enjoying it. Otherwise, I would. I think it's good stuff. I, I think I, I can attach uh, to what you just uh, shared with us um, a question. It's like you already answered it. Before I asked it, I was going to ask you, what of the future that you see keeps you from wanting to go there? You know, this connects to your book, your memoir that has gotten really nice reviews, which is uh, I've seen the future and I'm not going. Uh, You just it was just published uh, last September 2019. What you just described, is that part of what you see in the future and, and why you refuse to go there? It was a it was a. I've seen the future and I'm not going is what David McDermott said to me when I first met him. He said, I've seen it. It's hideous. Uh, I, you know, it's all about television. Now he just thinks it's absolutely even worse with computers and those phones. He had Glenn O'Brien send his 16 year old son to live with him in the countryside in Ireland, kind of get some like social education. And McDermott said he was on his phone all the time. He was on that phone forever. Up till three in the morning. I said he's sixteen. What do you want? He's an American kid, and I think that you know, like anything, it's great and it's horrible. You know, uh, 
a delicious lobster dinner. It's great, and then you're killing off lobsters. It's horrible. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's a dichotomy that has really just has. I don't even have an answer for it. But you know, I think that's the thing. I've seen the future. I'm not going. Save the economy, and you destroy the planet. Save the planet, and you destroy capitalism. It's an unfair and duality, really. It's an unfair... It is. Yeah. It is, because it's one or the other. If you can't have both sides. And, you know, they say, no, they're doing things. They're this machine, eats all the, takes all the plastic out of the water. This does this, this does that. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. But, you know, uh, the world seems very, very unfair lately. The privileged and the unprivileged. It, the line is getting so thin, you know? And I think that, for what? Jeff Bezos doesn't have to pay $11 billion when it would help pay those taxes. I mean, he's so rich that he's the richest man in the world. He paid nothing in taxes, yeah, nothing. Yeah, he pays nothing, and that's going to help the road structure, schools, education. Tiffany Devos doesn't want to have an educated class of Americans because educated people ask questions mm -hmm. and they say, no, that's not true. This is true. Everybody's just staring at But now you're a topless dancer Working out of a barn Times Square And everybody wishes you were back In the massage parlor back there On the Avenue You make me go ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby On the precinct always was watching for him on the beat But when he ripped off Seymour He was really not a doing so fine And everything is not swell Except his hands and legs and maybe even mine He's feeling it, it's real bad They said, ooh baby, ooh baby Today's competition, or didn't you know? And off the resin line, they make it so your wrinkles they don't show. And it's very funny the way a 20 bucks an hour can go. 
summer sun with Basquiat together on the run, sweet and jubilant and randy. Such a beautiful dream for a quintessential New York City queen.
Episode 356 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Peter McGough and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Duke Ellington, Haley Hendricks, Lou Reed, Billy Holiday, Brentford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this time. Take care. <laughs>